And I, too, just want to greet the Shropshires. Ah. Would you guys stand a moment? And if the children are with you, some of the children are probably in the children's now, right? All right. Just stand for a moment. <laughs> That's all. That's all. Just stand. Now, yeah, so... For those of you, because I do, I want to call you guys out because some of, some of our folks don't, you don't know each other yet. And so it's been a little while since you've been to Trinity. <laughs> so, well, you've been on the camera. So, but these are our dear friends, TJ and Lily, and they have three, three daughters. And uh, they are here um, from Africa. So they are full-time missionaries in Africa. Um, and Kim and I had the privilege this past year to be in their home in Africa, and it was just a, is, is a memory we will never forget, ever forget, and so they are dear friends to us, but they are dear friends to this church, and so they will be with us for the next six months um, as, as they are, uh, what, what would you say, rejuvenating, resting, <laughs> resting. good, and uh I desire that for you guys. I hope you guys genuinely get to rest while you're here. Um, But I do want you to continue to stand, and I want us to pray for them. And it was in relation to that just very thing. Father, we just pray that you would provide for the Shropshires much-needed rest. Lord, I pray that you would bless them and care for them and provide for them as you already have been, Lord. We are so glad. Thank you, Lord, for bringing them here to us this morning, and thank you for, um, in advance, for the next six months, Lord, that we get to worship together. Lord, and I pray that you would just uh, rejuvenate them and restore to them, just um, to their, to their soul, Lord, to, to just have the strength and conviction and compassion and all that's needed um, when it's time to transition back home. Uh, in Africa, Lord, and just so care for them, provide for them, bless them, help us as a church be a blessing to them, Lord, and we thank you so much for the Shropshires, in Jesus' name, amen. And Lord, please bless your word as we preach your word this morning, Lord, that you might be at work in each of our hearts today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, thank you guys for letting me do that, and uh, so... Relentless grace upon grace. I was surfing once upon a time. I used to do that. I was surfing during Christmas break in my first year of college in Hopetown in the Abaco Islands when I experienced the most relentless pounding of waves in my life. Large, massive waves as I paddled out on my little six-foot surfboard with coral reef that was initially a foot or two foot below me. It was an absolute, unrelenting pounding of ocean waves. Have you been in the ocean and been pounded by the waves? We're not talking about the Florida summer ripples. <laughs> We're talking about a storm surf, a pounding of, of you know, coming up for air, gasping for air, and being hammered again by the waves. And it's not the best illustration to open up with this morning, but it gets a little bit of a sense when you read John 1, 16, John says, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. 
That's the idea there. It's, it's, it's like wave upon wave upon wave upon wave of grace. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that's your testimony. That right there, John 1.16 is your testimony. You have experienced a life of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Unrelenting grace. And John expresses that grace upon grace like wave upon wave. And when John penned that, when he wrote that, he was talking, he wasn't, a, he wasn't talking about Christ. He wasn't talking about the New Testament, it hadn't been written yet. He was talking about the Old Testament. He was talking about grace that we see throughout the Old Testament, the unrelenting waves of grace, rapid succession of grace. That's how we are to read our Bibles. We've been recounting some of that as we've been going through our series, First and Second Samuel. We saw a while back, um, well, we've referred to it pretty often, Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve had sinned, grace was poured out on them. We found it in the covenant of Abraham. Uh, we, we see it in the covenant. We see it in the life of Noah. Wave after wave of grace. We see it in Abraham, Noah, Moses, David. If you were here last week, um, we preached through, well, chapter 11, 2 Samuel 11. If you weren't here, that records the sordid details of this man of God's fall uh, as he pursued Bathsheba. This grace, this relentless grace is on glorious display for us this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You see, your Bible is not a record of moral victories. Your, your Bible is a record of, of moral failure. It's not a record of moral vic- victories of a long list of saints. It's a record of moral failures with a long list of sinners. Who God, wave after wave after wave, relentlessly pursues with His grace. It's an amazing book. The unrelenting grace that's poured out throughout the pages of your Old Testament. You can turn the page into your New Testament and see God's grace there as well. And, and you can see it here in the room this morning. Your testimony is a testimony of the relentless grace of God in your life. Do you know this grace? Not everyone here this morning knows this grace. So I want to ask the question, do you know this grace? Do you know wave upon wave of relentless grace that's washed upon the shore of your soul? Last week was somber in tone. We've been talking about this over the past few years, but when we preach, we want to preach the tone of the text. What I realized while I was preaching last week is we want to listen to the tone of the text. We want to we respond with the tone of the text as well. And so it was interesting because I had to talk to myself while I was preaching last week. Because last week, if you were here last week, you remember, like it was, 
it was crickets in here. <laughs> it was so quiet in here. I'm just, I tell myself, just, just keep your head down and keep going. Like it was awkwardly quiet as we walked through that difficult text of David's sin. It was somber. It should be. That's the tone. Uh, well, today's part two. Chapter 11 isn't the end of the story. Chapter 11 should sober us. Chapter 11 ought to bring us to tears of sadness. Chapter 12 ought to bring us to tears of worshipful joy. Chapter 11 should break us. Chapter 12 should stun us. Chapter 11 ends with the words, this displeased the Lord. And can I just say, I think that's where too often Christians end their chapter. This displeased the Lord, end of chapter. Perhaps this is one of the worst chapter breaks in all of Scripture. Chapter breaks were not inspired. They were added later by man. This is a, this is a not so helpful chapter break. We'll say more on that in a few moments. But Chapter 11, David's sin is on display. The man of God, who has a heart after God, his, his failure is being recorded for us. The man of God has failed. He's, he's failed Bathsheba. He's failed her husband, Uriah. He's, he's failed her father, Eliam. He's failed the servants of Israel. He's failed all those who, who were killed in battle over David's sin. He has failed all of Israel, but he has most of all failed God. Chapter 11 is all these sordid details. How low will the man of God fall? End of chapter, God is displeased. End of story. But God will show himself faithful to Israel and to David in his line. Remember, we preach chapter 7. It's the covenant of David with David. Where? We're being told, David's being told, your kingdom will last. It will, it will reign forever. We'll, we come to chapter 11. We say, what's happened here to that kingdom? It's, it, it's all falling apart at this point. The Lord is displeased with the king. So we read last week part of the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. And the point that we were making in reading that as we worked our way through it. It's 16 generations. We just read a, a portion of it, but we, we worked our way to the point where it, it speaks of and the, the husband, uh, the, the, excuse me, the, the wife of Uriah, referring to, to Bathsheba, for, for, Uriah the Hittite, the, the Gentile, the outsider who became an insider, but also of, of Bathsheba. Uh, they make it into the genealogy, which is to say what? God is faithful that even through the sordid details, God remains faithful to his people, to his people Israel. God remains faithful to you, his people, this morning. Yes. 
Praise be to our God. That's what the gospel is. If it's, if it's not that, God working through the sordid details of our lives, if it's not that, then it's nothing. Too often in our lives, we end at chapter 11. This displeased the Lord. Our sin. And yes, it does. But it's not the end of the story. We turn the page to chapter 12, where we see relentless grace upon grace, and we'll turn the page further. And we come to Bethlehem, and we turn the page, and we come to Calvary, and we turn the page, we come to a tomb, and we turn the page, and the tomb is empty. We turn the page, and Christ will return for his bride, his church. Praise be to our God relentless, relentless grace upon grace. So let's dive in here. Point number one, sovereign grace. Sovereign grace is what we see in verses 1 through 12. Remember last week how we emphasized how often the word sent is being used. David is sending for people. He sends for Bathsheba. He sends servants. He, he sends for Uriah. This, and, the, and the point what I was making last week is that he's the king. He, it, it shows his authority in the kingdom. It shows his, his rule, his reign. He's the guy who can send for people and they come to him. He, he sends. That's chapter 11. We come to chapter 12, verse 1. And I don't know if you heard it. But let's back up. One verse. Chapter 11, verse 27, at the end of verse 27, and we're going to read right through the chapter break. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Oh, he's, he's, he's the king who sent. Oh, you, you, we, we read chapter 11, and we go, wow, the, David's, David's the man. He does all the sending. We, we turn the page. The Lord is displeased, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. It shows who is king in Israel. The Lord sends. David sends for Bathsheba. He sends for a servant. He sends for Uriah. He has the authority to send and send four people. And now we come to chapter 12, verse 1. Who is sovereign in Israel? Who's the sovereign king? Who's the king in Jerusalem? Who has all authority and power? Our God does. He's the king. If you are in the chapter 11 of your life, I pray that you will meet the God of chapter 12. Because you may be here. And that, and that may be how you walk in the room. You, you, perhaps later you can go back and just read chapter 11. Where you'd say, I'm in the chapter 11 of life. Well, turn the page to chapter 12. Praise God for verse number 1. It, it's not what you would necessarily think. The Lord is displeased with David. You fill in the blank if you didn't know what the next verse would be. What's the next verse? Probably not, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. 
it's just right off the bat immediately begins to show us the relentless grace of God, not simply on the page, but in our lives. So if you're in the chapter 11, 2 Samuel 11, point of life, I pray you will meet the God of chapter 12. The sovereign grace of God being poured out into your life, which could also at times be called uncomfortable grace, difficult grace, confronting grace, sovereign grace. We often think of grace and we've got this kind of this nice, comfy, you know, uh, view of grace. It's a cozy grace. It's my, you know, it's my cozy blanket. Maybe some of you will be cozying up to a blanket later on this afternoon. But sometimes sovereign grace isn't a comfy blanket. It's uncomfortable. It can be. And you'll see that in this chapter. And I want to praise God for all his forms of grace. No greater words to the sinner than the Lord sent. <laughs> the Lord sent Nathan to David uh, as a sinner, myself, you, you as a sinner, as sinners in need of grace. Praise be to God, the Lord sent. The Lord sent some of you, he sent an inmate. Some of you, he sent a, a high school friend or a college uh, a friend or a, a a college ministry, perhaps, or a teacher, or a preacher, or a mother, a father, a co-worker. God is ascending God. Ultimately, he sent Jesus Christ, his son, because of his relentless grace. One famous guy writes of his conversion. He tells of the day when he was 15 years old and he was walking to his church, but the snow was so significant that he couldn't make it all the way to his church, and so he decided to pop in to the primitive Methodist church on his way. So he goes into this small Methodist church, and he finds out the normal preacher is not there, and he just kind of comments on this, just kind of give you a little bit of a summary, but basically, he, he, as he tells of his, his salvation story, uh, he he tells of this preacher he just wasn't very good. <laughs> he wasn't very good. And he actually said he's not very smart. Um, no, as a 15-year-old, okay, <laughs> all right. Um, but he wasn't impressed because he wasn't a very good preacher. He was a simple man. But the simple man, the preacher, looked at this 15-year-old and told him, look to Christ and be saved. That is when and where the guy known as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, came to Christ. Because the Lord sends. The Lord sent Spurgeon to that church. The Lord sent that preacher to preach that day. The Lord is ascending God. And I'm saying to you, that is the sovereign grace of God. And God sent someone to you and God sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And I pray that you might see the sovereign grace of God in your life. Such a grace, what we read of here in chapter 12. Don't despise the Nathan that maybe shows up at your doorstep. You need Nathan. 
So, well, we already read it, but Nathan tells of a poor man. He only has one lamb. He raises that lamb. He cares for that lamb. That, that lamb gets raised alongside of his children, cares for it like a member of the family. And then there's a rich man, and the rich man is going to host a stranger who comes into town. And so he, the, the rich man takes the one lamb, the rich man who has flocks of sheep, takes from the poor man his one lamb, and slaughters it to feed his guest. And David, rightfully, is incensed. And Nathan tells him, you're that man. We all need a Nathan. We all need to be Nathan at times. Nathan, this uncomfortable grace, is a grace to the life of David, an uncomfortable grace. What? What makes grace, grace, is our sinfulness. Grace is mixed and mingled in the chapter 11 parts of our lives. You see, the sordid details that we read of in chapter 12 seem so distant, but they're not distant. They're near. They're not thousands of years ago by a guy named David, no, they land closer to home. They land on our hearts. And so in verse 7 and 8, Nathan's saying, you had it all, and yet you took from the lowly man who was Uriah. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Ultimately, that's what sin does. Sin despises the word of the Lord. It describes this world, doesn't it? It despises the word of the Lord. Don't let it describe you. Sovereign grace. Number two, confessing grace. We'll pick up verse number 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it, in, did, did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's grace. I've sinned against the Lord. Confession. The Lord's response is put away your sin. I think quite a few of you know that this is recorded in David's psalm. Psalm 51. We've preached through Psalm 51 in the past, so I'm just going to read to you different portions of it because it gives a little bit more detail to David's confession. So verse 1, Psalm 51. Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let 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 the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Confessing grace. No one else to blame. David, it is completely his to own. No one else to blame in our sin. It is completely ours to own. And his cry, have mercy on me. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And we've we've taken time on that in the past. So we're not going to take much time at all this morning. But but I just kind of want to say, but what about... what, What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about all the servants who died? What about Bathsheba's father who gets named in chapter 11? What, what about, what about, what about? Ultimately, David gets it right. Ultimately, sin is against the Lord. And we're told in verse 13 that God put away the sin. Boy, if you, if you mark anything in your Bible in chapter 12, mark that one. The Lord put away the sin. You know, in chapter 11, we see David going to to great lengths to cover up his sin. And he failed miserably trying to do so. And Adam and Eve, what? Sought to cover their sin with fig leaves and hiding. And in both cases, their attempt to cover up their sin was an utter failure. But God will put away your sin. Or He will cover up your sin. What, is it, what does this mean? It, means? it means there's grace that can be found when we confess to the Lord. I'm a sinner. God forgive me. David here, he's, his, his repentance is not some sort of, he's not pretending to be serious. He's not, he's not um, well, God doesn't forgive you based on your ability to produce a certain amount of tears. If I, I got to produce a certain amount of tears, and that, that shows the Lord that I'm really serious. God doesn't forgive you because we put on a show. I'm really serious about this, Lord. I'm going to say it over and over again just to prove how serious I am. Um, Or because we simply begin to make some changes. He forgives sin not because of David. Not because of you. But because it's the character of God. That those who confess sin. And we're told this in 1 John 1. If we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. So we see sovereign grace. We see confessing grace. But that's not the only wave of grace. They just keep coming. Wave upon wave, we see, number three, difficult grace. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you and out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and you sh- he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sins, you shall not die. Wow! Your family is going to fall apart due to your sin. It's going to happen before everyone. And it literally did. And Absalom, David's son, will come in and he'll go to the rooftop and he will take David's concubines for all to see. So as to say, we've talked about it before, when a conquering person would take the king's concubines, it is to say to all the people, what belonged to him, they're mine. I'm the king now. I'm taking the throne. I'm taking that which belongs to the king as if they were mine. Another son will come. Another son of David's will come and rape his sister. David will do nothing about it. And the kingdom will unravel. It will fall apart. And all of this is extremely difficult. It is discipline. And what I'm saying to you, it is the grace of God. God is disciplining David, and it shows to what depths, to what lengths will God go to bring faithfulness to his sinful people. This discipline is the Lord's love in that the Lord didn't leave him to himself. Church, I know we've said it before, you don't want the Lord to leave you to yourself. You want the Lord to relentlessly pursue you. Are you being disciplined by the Lord? Thank God for that difficult grace. Verse 14, nevertheless, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. He became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Now listen, just a little time out here. This is not to say that when a child dies, it's because of your sin. We don't know all the purposes of the Lord. We just don't know. What we do know is what's before us here. And it was because of David's sin here. But we'd be wrong to extend that beyond what we have right here. We know it's the discipline of the Lord here because we're told it's the discipline of the Lord here. And I want to remind us, I want to take us to Hebrews. Because discipline grace is difficult for us to swallow at times. 
Hebrews 12, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Mm, So do you. You do too. The reason you discipline your children is you love your children. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, if you're left to yourself, sometimes we think, just leave me to myself. If you're left with, without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful, rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who had been trained by it. Praise God for the difficult discipline of the Lord in our lives. You and I need difficult grace. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Number four, worshiping grace. Verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Hmm. We'll come back. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said... Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to lay to her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. There are a few things that we could look at here, but I think the one thing that I want to point out, the one thing that I think is needed most for us this morning at Trinity is the grace of worship. At this point, we might think David's going to end his life or end his life in a depressed state. Instead, he goes to worship. There's two amazing things here when he goes to worship. First, first amazing thing is that he went to worship. Isn't that amazing? In his shame, in his mess, where does he go? He went to worship. Too often, I find that we're too tempted and we'd run from God rather than run to God. And we run from corporate worship we're too ashamed can't be seen by those people or by God we run from his people we run from the church we run from corporate worship we run from the Lord we're too ashamed we're too embarrassed 
I love the grace that's found here on this page. He went to worship. I'm not worthy to go worship. Have you felt that way? Have you walked in here? Have you stood during the singing and just kind of reflected on your week and you just realized, I'm not worthy to worship? Answer, you're right. Who of us is worthy in and of ourselves to worship a holy God? Answer, none of us. What a beautiful grace that he goes to worship the Lord. Can I tell you how often I've seen it, ah, just, you know, caught in our sin, making a distance from this is not the grace that's needed. God help us. Go to worship. He goes to worship. That's one amazing thing. Second amazing thing. The Lord loves him and accepts him as a child. Verse 24 is amazing to me. Where is it? Here we go. And the Lord, the, ver- the, the last part of that verse, and the Lord loved him. And the Lord loved you. That's grace upon grace. Number five, victorious grace. Verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabah. Moreover, moreover, I've taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head, the weight of it, it was a talent of gold, and it was a precious stone, and it, was, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it, and sent them, set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And Israel marches on. Not that David's sin is forgotten. Not that it's kind of ignored, but it's dealt with. And there's a big difference. How does God, remember we said earlier, God put away David's sin. David tried to put away his sin. He tried to put it away by covering it up. And Adam and Eve did the same. And you and I do the same. How does God put away David and yours and my sin? Does he just say, well, it's not a big deal, David. We're just going to move along. Does he just ignore it? No, there were consequences. And no, there are consequences for us. He didn't just ignore our sins. He sent his Savior to die on the cross for our sins. He received, Christ received on the cross, what your sins and my sins deserved, which is what? death. How does Christ cover up sin? Well, he covers it up with his blood. His blood was poured out for our sins. 
That's the meaning of the cross. The consequences of our sin is death. Christ came to die the death that our sins deserved. He took our place on the cross. He took our sins. He gave us his righteousness. Praise be to God. That's the relentless grace of God that comes to sinners. He died in our place, the holy God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The holy God, the righteous God, became sin that you and I might become righteous. Stunning grace. He pays the price that our sins deserved. So the king is victorious here at the end of the chapter. But for over a year now, as we've been preaching through First and Second Samuel, We've said over and over again, David's just a type. He's just a shadow of the king who's to come. So when I see David is out in battle and he's victorious, it's a reminder. Our king is victorious. Not victorious in the battle of flesh and blood. Victorious in the battle of sin and death. Our king goes to battle. Now, it's a beautiful thing because in chapter 11, remember last week we were talking, David, it was a time of kings. How does it read? Verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. He didn't go. And his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. And our whole point last week is because in the prosperity, like David used to go into battle. But now David's just hanging back. It's kind of cool. You come now to the end of chapter 12, and what happens? David goes to battle. I'm saying to you that David is a type. He's a pointer. He's a big sign on the side of the road that's pointing you. It's not about him. It's pointing you. A king is coming. A king is coming. Jesus is coming. His victory will be ultimate and complete. He will win the battle over your sin and death on the cross. He's pointing. Jesus is coming. Your enemy, sin, will be ultimately defeated by the king. He didn't remain in heaven, in the comforts of heaven. He didn't do David chapter 11 verse 1. It's a time of year when the kings go to battle. No, the king went to battle for you. He left the comforts of the kingdom, of the palace, if you will. Unlike David in chapter 11, he went to battle on your behalf, taking on human flesh as a baby, going to the cross, dying on the cross, buried in the tomb, raised from the grave, showing us the Father has received the Son's sacrifice, showing us That Jesus has ultimately defeated our enemy. And the king, he will come again. And when he comes again, he will come in ultimate, ultimate victory. 
wave upon wave of grace. That's your life as a follower of Christ. If the worship team would join me. Christ is our victory. Last week, there's a sense, is a somber tone. It's, it's a difficult passage. It's appropriate. But can I say to us, church, today is part two. <laughs> the sequel. Because chapter 11 is not the end. It's not the end of the story here in the Bible. It's not the end of the story for anyone who's here today and calls themselves, I'm a follower of Christ. Your story doesn't end with the Lord is, is displeased with you. In spite of the fact that we've sought to cover up our sin, in spite of the fact that we blame others for our sin, in spite of the fact that we pile sin on top of sin like David did, in spite of the fact that we try to hide our sin, maybe with some good activity, try to throw some good morals at our sin, try to cover it up a bit. We try to ignore it. We think if we ignore it, maybe God will ignore it. God doesn't ignore it. He deals with it. And he either deals with our sin through us or towards us. If we are unrepentant sinners, we will receive the consequence of that sin. Or those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, he deals with it by allowing his son to receive the consequences that our sins deserved. Our king is victorious one way or the other. He is victorious. And so if I could, invite all the sinners in the room to stand. <laughs> and let's join in song. First song is going to be brief. I just, want you to, I just want you to hear the gospel sung to you and sung over you. The second song, let's respond. All those, chapter 12, who have received relentless grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, let us rejoice and let's behold him. Praise be to our God.